crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctigal. I'm coming to you today from the United States of America. I'm here in Oklahoma still with my family. I intend to be here through Sukkot, or at least in the U.S. through Sukkot. And I'll be delivering this week's program as well as next week's program, following which we'll have an episode by Christopher Reams, our archaeological commentator from the United Kingdom. So we're looking forward to hearing from him soon as well. This past week was quite big for Watch Jerusalem. We released our first edition, Volume 1, uh, edition one of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. This went to the print. It went to print, I guess it was in Wales, uh, earlier on this week, and it will be arriving in mailboxes in Israel towards the end of next week. So if you are a subscriber to the Watch Jerusalem magazine, that's going to be coming to you uh, within a week or so. So that's a very exciting development for the work of Watch Jerusalem. If you're not a subscriber, again, this is a free magazine that's going to come out six times a year, and it is uh, entitled Watch, Watch Jerusalem, just like this program, and it's available for free. And you can request uh, to receive a subscription at watchjerusalem.co.il. Or you can also write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il and receive a copy. It will be going to about 100 Israelis this very first issue. And so we're looking forward to expanding that number in the weeks and months ahead. Today, I'd like to focus our attention on an article written by Philippe Bostrom in Ha'ara. It's entitled, Assyrians came, conquered, and kicked everyone out. Tablets, tablets reveal 2,700-year-old relocation. And it details the discovery of a couple of clay tablets that took place at Tel Hadid. This is a location right next to the Ben-Gurion airport. And um, I'm just going to get stuck into this because it, it reveals a beautiful slice of biblical history and provides backing and, and proof, archaeological proof, for a really transformative policy of the Assyrian Empire. And this policy is recorded at length in the Bible, although this article does not mention the Bible once, surprisingly, since that is the only historical document that talks about what happened and why these people were there. It doesn't mention it. Uh, nevertheless, we will, and we'll show you how the discovery of these two tablets confirm the scriptures from 2,700 years ago. Again, this article is by Philippe Bostrom, and uh, he, I think he actually has a degree in archaeology as well. And uh, I will be um, leaving a link to this article as well in the show notes if you'd like to read it for yourself. He starts off this way. Two clay tablets found at Hadid recording loans and land sales in the 7th century BCE indicate that most of the people living in the town between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem today were foreign, not Israelites, archaeologists say. In fact, the former territory of the kingdom of Israel may have had very few Israelites left during the 7th century BCE. Archaeological evidence suggests. It definitely does suggest that, as we'll get to, as does the Bible, as does the historical text uh, detailing what happened to the Israelites at this time, as we'll get to also. He continues this way. The two tablets, so we're talking about like a, a small stone tablet with writing engraved in it. That's what we mean. 
made of clay and inscribed in cuneiform, which is the ancient type of writing that was used in Mesopotamia before alphabetical script, have been dated to the time of the Assyrian rule over the southern Levant, the 8th and 7th century BCE. They named several individuals, none with typical Hebrew names. So we can tell the people on these on these, uh, on these these tablets were not Israelite or Judean because they don't have the names that we find everywhere else uh, f- from this period, at least in the south, that have those uh, Judean names. The town of Hadid purchase, purchase on a hill covering a vast 50 hectares, so whatever that is, times 2.6, I guess it is, or 2.5 for acres, so um, 100, and, 100 plus acres, let's put it that way, uh, 125 acres, and then also Dunams, I forget what that is, that's, that's even more. Anyway, you can do the calculations there, but this is huge, making it one of the largest archaeological sites in Israel, and this ex- excavation that we found these two, uh, these two tablets took place this year and it's only been reported on over the past week or so it says this during the following biblical period the settlement grew well beyond the mound among the structures uncovered in the excavation is a pillared four-room house typical of the iron age in the levant and as said the archaeologists uncovered evidence of non-israelite influences and there's a big picture here of one of the tablets it says this, aside from the tablets showing land sales to people with strange names, a seal has been found with the emblem of the Assyrian moon god Sin. That was discovered during this season of excavations led by Eli Yenai, former, formerly of the Antiquities Authority, Ido Koch of the Tel Aviv University, and Dan Warner of the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So if you go to this, this report at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Ceremony, they obviously start off with the Bible and showing how what they found has proven the Bible. It seems very strange to me that Haaretz would decide not to include the biblical text, uh, given that it is the historical document that des- describes exactly why these Assyrian or these, let's say, foreigners were here in this location at this precise time. Interesting. You're not finding uh, these foreigners there from 50 years earlier. You're finding them at this precise time. And that's because the Bible is an accurate historical document and it is uh, it details the history of these people that were brought into this location, as we'll get to. There were two main centers. It talks about the moon god Sin and showing that this, this god, this pagan god, was um, had sent religious centers in the south of Babylon and also Haran in the north, Haran being in typical Assyrian territory. And as Assyria spread its wings over the lands of Syria and Palestine, its gods came too, the article says. Now it quotes one of the archaeologists. The iconogra- iconography, iconography, of the moon god spread across the Levant in the 7th century BCE. We found it in a secured archaeological context of the 7th century BCE, and hence we can speculate about its connection to an agent of the Assyrian Empire. So you've got this uh, got this little emblem of the sin god there, uh, the Assyrian moon god found, and then on the seal, and then you also have these two tablets. One tablet found in the courtyard of the pillared house documents a land sale in the year 698 or 697. Isn't that amazing? 
that they can be so specific as to what year this land sale took place based on Assyrian records. They can tell that this was in 698 or 697, and this is right at the end of Hezekiah's Hezekiah's rule. And of course, we're in an area just outside the Judean kingdom. Originally, it looks like this area did belong to the southern kingdom of Judah, as we'll get to uh, later on. But it was it was uh, this territory kind of shrunk as Sennacherib came down and started taking over southern Judah. So this is the same time around Sennacherib's venture into Judah. The other tablet was inside a different structure and documents alone in the year 665 or 664 BC. So about 30 years later, two documents. Uh, inside this location on this tell around where Ben Gurion Airport is today. This next part is quite funny. The money, talking about this documented loan, this ancient loan from 2,700 years ago. We don't do loans this way anymore, or at least we don't have the same collateral as you'll see. The money was lent to what appears to have been a family for a three-month period by a Mesopotamian living in the area of the former Israelite kingdom. The borrower, according to the document, used his wife and sister as collateral and promised to pay punitive interest amounting to a third of the sum if he did not return the loan on time. So he gave up his wife and sister. Uh, They were collateral if he didn't pay it up on time or didn't pay it back at all. And if he was late, he gets to pay a third of the sum back (laughs) back to this person. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Both documents feature Akkadian, perhaps Babylonian, and Aramean names of several individuals. No local Yahwehistic name is mentioned. So it's got no Yahoo name, basically, at the end of it. Not a Netanyahu, Matanyahu, or anything else. Or if you're talking about in the Anglicized Bible, there's no Aya, Gedaliah, or Mataniah, that sound. No names featuring that on the documents. Then it says this, why would the area of the former kingdom of Israel north of Jerusalem become thronged by non-Israelites? Good question. Good question. So if you're talking about the area in which we're, we're discussing, we're talking about this borderland between where the northern kingdom of Israel was and where the southern kingdom of Judah was. So a bit of a recap. Basically, they're asking, what happened here? Why do we have in this former territory that the Israelites were these new people? How did they get there? And that they're very quick, that they're soon after the northern tribes of Israel are deported. Who's there? How did they get there? Well, we can turn to the Bible for that answer. They don't turn to the Bible for that answer, uh, but, but we can. And you are probably very familiar with this history because this is the time period that the northern kingdom of Israel is going into captivity and the southern kingdom of Israel eventually is going to face Sennacherib, the mighty Assyrian king, and his armies and be defeated by God at Jerusalem. So this happens around that same time. And we're talking about a territory, uh, again, Uh, 30 minutes or so drive from Jerusalem towards the north, territory that would have been on the borderland between the the northern Israelite tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah. So you'll remember that Israel was united under King David about 300 years before this time. And there was still these tribal divisions, and yet they came together under David and under Solomon, his son. And after Solomon's death, Rehoboam ruled over both kingdoms. And shortly thereafter, you had the southern, this, the northern kingdom break away under the rulership of Jeroboam. And then from that point forward, from about nine, 
926, something like that, I believe it is, onwards, you have two kingdoms that are functioning separately. Sometimes they're at war with one another. Sometimes they are allied with one another. They operate independent foreign policy. They have an independent religion of one another as well. The southern kingdom of Judah from Rehoboam onwards still has the temple. That is their place of worship. But we know that Jeroboam changed the religion of the northern tribes. He accepted himself. He put himself in the position of the high priest in the southern kingdom of Judah. That was not allowed. The high priest and the king were separate offices, not allowed to be fulfilled by the same person. Not in the northern kingdom of Israel. They still maintained a worship of Yahweh or God, as they would say, but they worshipped him in their own way. They changed the laws. The king was also the high priest at this point under Jeroboam's time or under Jeroboam's rule. They also changed the places of worship. They couldn't go to Jerusalem no more because that's he was worried that if Jerusalem was the lone center of worship that the northern tribes would return to the fold of the uh, the house of David ruling from Jerusalem. So he set up two places of worship, one in the north in Dan, very beautiful spot at the very north of Israel from Dan, and then in Bethel, Bethel obviously being very close to this border region uh, between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And so he set up his two golden calves there, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he said, these be your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And so from that point forward, from about 926 onwards, you have a corrupted version of true religion, let's put it that way, that is being uh, kept or adhered to in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then you had uh, worship without these golden calves and such from Jerusalem taking place with the high priestly line continuing with the Levites and such uh, from the southern kingdom. The, the Jeroboam eventually got rid of the Levites, got rid of the educated class and put over this the religious affairs underneath him, the basest of men, as it says in the Bible, men that he could control. This was state-run religion for the purpose of control. That is the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom of Judah, you did have the, the separate control uh, between the priestly class and the uh, house of Judah, the king. Now, that's not to say that the, the that southern Judah obeyed God uh, throughout. Of course, they didn't. They had their own bouts with idols, even as King Solomon did as well. Uh, but you had these moments in time when proper worship was restored under such kings as Hezekiah and Josiah later on. But that was not the case as the northern tribes. Okay, so the northern tribes for 300 years or 250 years continue to go about their independent foreign policy of the southern kingdom of Judah, their independent religion. Everything is pretty independent, except you do have a lot of prophets that are sent to them. The prophets Elijah, the prophets Elisha are sent to them. Prophet Amos eventually, prophet Hosea, they are sent to the, the prophet Joel, all sent to these northern tribes that did have an understanding of God, but they worshipped God as they saw fit in their own way, according to their own developed tradition, which was impacted by the religions of other nations surrounding them. They were affected. And eventually, because of this, they would go into captivity. They wouldn't listen to God's prophets, and they would go into captivity to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, based in northern Mesopotamia, uh, Nineveh being one of their capitals, Nineveh being where modern-day Mosul is today. 
and the Assyrian Empire was quite large at this this point. This was the growing Assyrian Empire. It conquered Babylon to the south. And one of their policies of the Assyrian Empire was to uh, take over lands and then deport the original inhabitants of those lands and replace them with foreigners. And it was hoped through this practice that the people would lose their patriotism and to their natural gods and their the their, their, the let's say the things that would force them to want make them want to rebel against the Assyrians because they would be away from their homeland. And that was the policy here as they took over the northern tribes of Israel as well. Now, this is thoroughly attested to by archaeology in the Bible. You had a series of kings before Sennacherib that came down to the territory of Israel. And before they did that, they took over all the territories of Syria and all the people in the northern Syria, Lebanon, and they pushed their way through a period of about 30 years towards Egypt. And so the first one of those, Tiglath-Pileser III, he took over the, the, the tribes that were on the eastern side of the Jordan River, including Gad, Reuben, East Manasseh. Uh, he also took over Naphtali as well he, and took those people into captivity early on. And then after he died, Shalmaneser came down and continued this. He besieged Samaria, the capital city of northern tribes of Israel in 722, around that time, 721. And after a three-year siege, Samaria falls. And all the, the tribes of the northern tribes of Israel, not including Ju- not Judah, not Benjamin, and most of Levi, they're still there. They're in the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern tribes of Israel, they go into captivity. They are taken away. They are gone from this land. God banishes them. They become what's known as the lost 10 tribes from that point forward, never to return back to their homeland. To this day, they are elsewhere around this planet. And if you want to know who they are and where they went, you can request our book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. It talks exactly where they went and who the modern nations that they make up today. They don't just form pockets of Jews elsewhere in the world. These were never Jews. The northern tribes of Israel were never Jews. The northern tribes of Israel had recanted that religion and they had their own religion. And because they had already done away with the Sabbath day, the southern kingdom of Judah didn't, they lost their identity. You will not be able to trace the northern tribes of Israel, the lost 10 tribes of Israel, by uh, following Sabbatarians or those that are keeping the Sabbath day. It's impossible to do that because the northern tribes didn't keep the Sabbath day. That's why they went into uh, one of the one of the two main test commandments that they failed to keep and why they went into captivity. And so what happened, though, with this land that they were removed from? And that's what this article is about. We have in the very space that these northern tribes were, they are conducting excavations at Hadad here. And what have they found? Hadid, sorry. They've found from this period, just after the Assyrian captivity, the removal of the northern tribes, already people that are not Israelite, that are not Jews, they're operating in this town, conducting business deals inside this town, buying property inside this town. These were foreigners that were brought in. Why would the area of the former kingdom of Israel, north of Jerusalem, become thronged by non-Israelites? That's what this article says. And this is what they go on to write. 
It says, during the mid-8th century BCE, the Assyrians, under the leadership of Tiglat-Pileser III, grew in all directions. Order was maintained in the realm by means of a program of mass deportation and transplantation of conquered peoples. How do you know that? How do they know that? Well, that comes right out of the Bible. Right out of the Bible. And we've noticed this also at other locations uh, throughout the northern tribes of Israel, a northern territory of Israel, I should say, that was Israel, and also even far south as Gezer, which is uh, probably, I'm guessing, about 10 kilometers a little bit further south. Because that's what the Assyrians did. When Sennacherib finally comes down, he's after Sargon. Sargon was after Shalmaneser. And they all have this continuing policy of expansion further towards Egypt. And they're each taking little bits of territory, deporting the people that were there, uh, transplanting new people into this territory. And this goes all pushes all the way up against Egypt. Philistines are removed at this point as well. They don't escape what's the Assyrian Empire as they're coming down. They get removed from this territory as well. No, the Philistines didn't stay there. They're also deported as well, the ancient Philistines, by the Assyrian Empire. And it finally gets to Sennacherib's time, and the policy is stopped in terms of taking over Judah, at least Jerusalem, because God turned Sennacherib around. And if you want some history on that, you can request our free exhibit brochure uh, about the seals of Isaiah and King Hezekiah discovered. Again, we'll send these to you wherever you are in the world for free. It says this in this article, it seems the Assyrians forcibly relocated hundreds of thousands of people. It's quite a lot of people to other places within the realm of conquered lands during their hundred years of domination over the Levant. Levant, again, just this area of Syria and Palestine. The apparent purpose behind the harsh policy was to break the spirit of the national groups and weaken or eliminate, eliminate potential rebellion. So it is interesting that you have this. Uh, you don't really have, you have this policy not really taking place under the Babylonians who would replace the Assyrians. And then the Persians decide to be real nice and let the people go back to where they came from. And by that time... Israel isn't going back. Israel has already lost a history, but the Jews would end up going back, um, as we know, which would then form the, the, the state or the people of Judea uh, leading into the Maccabean times. Uh, continuing on with this article, it says this, um, in 722 BCE, after the son of Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser V, had conquered the kingdom, he continued his father's policy of expelling the locals and replacing them with foreigners. And then that's all we're going to go into. Let's go to the Bible now. So they don't mention the Bible, surprisingly, because you could have a beautiful historic account of, of what happened anciently and why. It answers that question they posed. Why do you have the Assyrians being there? Or not the Assyrians, sorry. Why under Assyrian rule do you have foreigners living here? Because they weren't Assyrians that were here. They were Babylonians and other groups of nations. The Bible explicitly says who was imported into this region. And this is what the scripture says. I'm going to read from the um, ESV on 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24 to 41. And it is so interesting to me that the Bible chooses to put this in, or this is included in the biblical text. You can see the rest of chapter 17 is about the final uh, um, collapse of the Israelite kingdom. God goes into them being taken away captive. The last king of Israel is mentioned. King of Israel, not Judah. 
And then it talks about why they were taken into captivity because of their idolatry and breaking the Sabbath. And then it spends the next second half of this chapter talking about the people that replaced them. Because God was concerned to include this in the Bible. He wanted it known who these people were that are going to be taking up residence in the northern Israelite kingdom, where the Israelites were. These people are going to be settling there. During the time of Josiah, during the time of Manasseh, during the time of the three last kings of, the, of Judah, they're, not, they're going to have neighbors, and those neighbors are not going to be Israelite. Those neighbors are going to be foreigners, as proven by both the Bible and these documents that came up that had land sales, loans, and none of them having Judean or Israelite names. This is verse 24 of 2 Kings 17. It says this, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Qatar, from Ava, from Hamath, and Sephavim, sorry about that, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So when it says cities of Samaria, it's just talking about this northern kingdom area that was sometimes called Samaria after the capital of the kingdom, just like you would call, refer to Jerusalem, referring to the entire tribe or entire tribal areas of, of Judah. You could do that for uh, talking about Samaria as the capital of the northern tribe. So Assyria takes possession, boots out the Israelites, and you see other people, Babylonians. And if you look at a map, you can see all these different cities, and it's basically the arc of the uh, of the 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 uh, fertile crescent. It's called basically this this crescent shape that goes down from. Um, from the Persian Gulf, from Babylon, Ur, down there, all the way up, up between the Euphrates and the Tigris, all the way up across, and then crossing over towards, let's say, modern Turkey, southern part of modern Turkey and uh, Syria. And people were transplanted from those locations because they were also conquered by the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians were, and then they were put in this territory that the northern tribes of Israel lived in says this and at the beginning of their dwelling there they did not fear the eternal they didn't fear god they didn't fear yahweh these people not israelites therefore the eternal sent lions among them which killed some of them so the king of assyria was told the nation so then you have these people um well then the king of assyria was told this let's just quote the bible it says this the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of samaria do not know the law of the god of the land so notice here that they've got so many different pagan ideologies here. There's a certain god of the land. There's different gods for each patch of dirt. And these people that came in from Babylon and elsewhere, they didn't know the god of the land. And so the god of the land is destroying them. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the god of the land. So this is their interpretation. This is the, let's say, a representative of these Babylonians that are potentially at Hadid saying, hey, some of our people are getting killed. We don't know the God of this land. We need to learn about the God of this land. How do we learn about that? Well, the king of Assyria has a solution. Verse 27, then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests, priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So notice what's happening here. So they go and they probably find in the Assyrian Empire 
probably eastern eastern Assyria where the Israelites were transported to and they say hey we need a priest we need a priest that knew about this former land that you came from so he can come and teach us about this God so they go and they grab one of these priests and they bring him back and he now lives among the Babylonians in the former territory of Israel and he's teaching them about the God of the land. Verse 28. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel. Back to Bethel. Bethel, of course, did hold great religious significance uh, if you're going back to the time of the patriarchs. But Bethel was this place that was set up by Jeroboam and taught them, it continues, how they should fear the eternal. But what version of fear of the eternal was this priest uh, priest teaching them? It wasn't the version that was preached down in the southern kingdom of Judah amongst the Jews. It was the version for which they went into captivity in the first place. And so he was teaching them a corrupted version of the law already, this priest that was sent back there. So he taught them, a little bit about the law, of course. Then he taught them a corruption of it as well. Verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. So you've got now a corruption of a corruption, if I could put it that way. You have a corrupted version of true religion And then you have added to that the induction of Babylonian religion into that. And so you have the very beginnings here of Babylonian mystery being uh, synthesized with a corrupted version of the truth. Very interesting what's going on here. This is the creation of a new religion, in fact, or it's an old religion, let's put it that way, but it's a new slant on it. It is a counterfeit. A counterfeit is being created right before our eyes amongst these Babylonians. A counterfeit that is going to make things very confusing as time goes on through the centuries for sure. Let's just jump down a little bit. Verse 32 says this. They also feared the Lord and appointed appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. The shrines, again, that they had built for their other gods. You had these priests uh, worshipping. So they feared the eternal, but also their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So they brought with them, as I said, Babylonian religion, they mixed it with a corrupted version of true religion to create a new religion, a religion of the Samaritan people. That's what they would be known as. These Samaritans would become a thorn in the side of the Jews for the next hundred years and then thereafter during the time of the exile. So let's go. Let's go over to another scripture that mentions these people. This is found over in the book of Ezra. Ezra, you'll remember, Uh, came back after the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity and he came back and led a religious revival uh, back to God's law. He was the priest of the Most High God, as it says there in the book of Ezra. But we're talking about a period even before Ezra now in the book of Ezra, if that makes sense. The first six chapters of Ezra are written before his time, or at least before he made his own journey back. We're talking about the time period that Zerubbabel came back. Zerubbabel. He was the original governor of this land of uh, Yehud under the Persians. So we're, we're skipping now, let's say, about 
200 or 180 years, 180 years after the discovery of these tablets or when these tablets were from. And so you have this people that have been brought in to this land and they've been living there about 180 years up to this point of Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 here written around 536, 535, probably 535 uh, BCE. It says this, verse chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the eternal God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you, and we do sacrifice unto him. Since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up here. So this is another scripture, which is answering that question from the article in Haaretz about how these people got there. You've got a, now you've got a second source telling you how they got there. But notice this. It says the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. It doesn't say the adversaries of Israel. Because there's only a couple tribes left that returned back from Babylonian captivity and they lived. They lived right next to, I mean right next to, this, this where the Samaritans were, where this people, these Babylonians and such, lived. And then you've got, it doesn't actually name them here, but it says the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. So these people that were transported in under the Assyrians, they became the adversaries. But notice what they say. They say, let us build with you. For we uh, seek your God as you, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up here. Are they lying? Did, did they seek Yahweh or their version of Yahweh? Of course they did. And they said, hey, look, you're building up the temple again. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it together. But Zerubbabel says no. Zerubbabel does not allow them to, ta- to partake of the process of building the temple. What does he say? Verse 3, but Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the high priest at the time, and the rest of the children of the fathers of Israel said unto them, you have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the eternal God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land, or these Samaritans, weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. And so these people were going to become very strong adversaries of Judah. These Samaritans, these Babylonians that had a counterfeit version of the truth that continued in this religion for the next hundreds and hundreds of years, even after this point, and they're going to be located right next to them. Now, it's interesting if you look at where Hadid is mentioned, this town where they found these tablets is mentioned in the Bible, you'll find them, uh, find these references around the same time here, time period of Zerubbabel. It's because this town eventually got retaken over by the Jews. It got retaken over by the Jews because it was on the very northern uh, uh, point of the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where this is mentioned. And so from this, we can tell because the fact that they found these tablets in this town that would eventually turn back over to Judah, that you had two nations or two provinces, let's put it that way, that were right next to each other during the time of the exilic period. 
during the time of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. And they are going to be rubbing up against one another, one with a counterfeit version of the truth that they would adhere to, and another trying to restore true worship in Jerusalem. And they are going to be enemies, let's put it that way, adversaries, the, 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 the group that tried to stop the work of the construction of the temple and the construction of the wall during, during Nehemiah's time thereafter, 100 years after this point, 80 years after this time, the main adversary always came from these Samaritans, from these Babylonians living just north of the Israelites, uh, just north of the Jews. Notice here it says that they were brought there since, as verse 2 says of Ezra chapter 4, they were there since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up here. Esarhaddon was the younger son of Sennacherib. He ruled around 680. So there was probably a few waves of these Babylonians that came in to this land. And Zerubbabel didn't discredit that the history because he knew it was true. These people were brought in. These people did worship Yahweh. Let's just say it that way for now. They did worship that God, but they worshiped him incorrectly. And that's why Zerubbabel said, no, you're not going to mix with us. In fact, it was our mixing with the religions of the nations around us that eventually brought us into captivity. And we're just coming back from that captivity. So we don't want to be involved in that whatsoever. And from that moment forward, you had these people that were continually trying to stop the work of God taking place in the southern kingdom of Judah until you get to the time during Nehemiah's uh, rule and he's facing off with Sanballat, the governor. Sinballat, he could be called. Sin, the same God that they found here, the same Assyrian God that they found here. You had one of these Samaritans with that very own name, very same name, Sanballat, that ruled over the Samaritan people, trying to, again, corrupt, infiltrate the, the Jews under Nehemiah. And you even had one of his, uh, one of his sons, one of his daughters actually marrying into the royal line of Zadok, high priestly line. One of the grandsons of the high priest during Nehemiah's time actually went up and joined with the Samaritan religion and became their high priest. And so eventually, they actually had a high priest of Zadok's line that was going to be high priest of this counterfeit religion. It's absolutely amazing to me just how much history is brought out in the Bible about these people in just to the north of to the north of, of Judah. Why does the Bible do that? Because God wants people to know the history of these people, the counterfeit they created, and where that counterfeit still exists today, up to the very time we're living. This would be a very powerful test if if they chose to include this history in Haaretz, what a powerful article that would have made to show how these how the archaeological discovery of these tablets matches precisely the biblical text so you've got the element there of just proving biblical history from 2700 years ago as correct talking about this policy of the Assyrian empire and and, and how the the Israelites were deported and replaced and who replaced them and then following on to show how they learned about the god of the land as well as they would see it and then where that would go in the hundreds years following. Now, if you want to learn more about this specific people and what happened to this counterfeit and how it is alive and very well to this day, in fact, thriving over this world, you can read and request that same booklet I mentioned earlier. 
the United States and Britain in prophecy. It talks about what happened here anciently to the land where the Israelites lived and how this people of Samaria grew up in that place and where they went from there. It's not just a bunch of Samaritans up there by Nablus today and Shechem and and having their little ritual at Passover and we get a bunch of foreign press in there and they look at how the Passover is still being kept by these Samaritan people. The, The counterfeit has moved on. There's not just a few hundred people that are the remains of these Samaritan people. The religion of the Samaritans has moved on. It's taken root throughout the Western world. And you really can understand how that happened. And the proof is everywhere in the Bible. And it is explained clearly in that book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. If you would like to know more about that, please request that book. You can write to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il to request that book. Or you can go to our literature tab at the website to find it. I also request that you read Christopher Reams' article about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the governor that looked after Judah the time just after Zerubbabel. And he's got an article up on Watch Jerusalem entitled uh, Nehemiah, a man, a war, a momentous wall or something of that nature. But I'll leave the link in the show notes for you today so that you can find that article and read about more of the connection points between archaeology and the Bible during this time period. Thanks very much for listening and I'll talk to you next week.